0: Hello, I'm Penny Borum, and I'm here with four members of the Open University's Geography Department. We'll be discussing issues that arise from one of your courses, Living in a Globalised World. On that course, you start with the Mexico-US border, and that's what
1: we're talking about today. First of all, please introduce yourselves.
2: Hello, I'm John Allen, a
3: Professor of Economic Geography.
1: Hi, I'm Melissa Butcher. I'm a lecturer in Cultural Geography.
3: Hello, I'm Clive Barnett. I'm a reader in Human Geography.
1: Hi, I'm Gillian Rose. I'm a
0: professor of cultural geography. First of all, John Allen, why the US-Mexico border? I know it's one of the most contested in the globe, but why did you choose it?
2: Well, certainly partly because it was contested. But actually, for us, it's, the border is like a microcosm of some of the global challenges that face us today. So the border itself gives us a very sharp contrast between rich and poor, between the more powerful and the less powerful, and also between abundance and scarcity to a certain extent. So what you see with the border is the real contrast in the inequalities and in terms of power. But more than that, we felt that the border itself almost acted like a microcosm of of globalisation. So it expressed in a rather intense way some of the global challenges facing us, say, around migration, say, around cross-border flows in terms of trade, in terms of the cultural shake-up of the whole border when people are separated in terms of water wars. So a number of the real pressing issues around the globe today you can actually see in a rather intense way on the US-Mexico border.
0: Are there other examples you could have chosen? I mean, did you debate this amongst you all?
2: The debate was endless. (laughs) There were various choices. We were thinking, for example, at one stage maybe we'd go with Hong Kong and China. Uh, we looked around various borders around the globe, but we, we came back to the US-Mexico border because we felt it covered more of the challenges that we were looking for, because we wanted to use the border as a launching pad for the course DD205 as a whole.
0: I understand that two of you, John and Clive Barnett, were involved in making the films for the course. Was this a fantastic experience for you both?
3: Yes, it was. There was there was uh, more than just the two of us. There were a series of people involved, both academics and and filmmakers. So it was uh, so it was certainly an interesting experience. It's an entirely different way to think about the teaching that one's involved in. To actually think about how to translate the themes one wants to address in in a course through visual material, and also to actually interact with filmmakers who have an entirely different sort of, sort of imagination of how to communicate. So it was a it was a challenge uh, as, as a way of teaching.
0: Looking at the clips, yeah. The films are very personality-driven. Was this a, a, a decision that you took to try and find individuals who could actually articulate the issues that you wanted to cover in the Yes,
3: course? I think so. I mean, I think that's one of the, the things which uh, teaching through the film enables you to do rather than actually teaching abstract concepts. Making uh, film enables you to focus on particular people and to have those embody a series of conflicts and, and issues. And it's also a way of actually making it clear that that particular part of the world that border is actually where people live and it's a, a living on the border and living through globalization on the border is a lived experience for people who are migrating legally or I- illegally the, the people who are policing that that process the people who are w- working in factories the people who are managing factories these are real real people so that the processes which we're trying to address in the course are actually lived through various to particular people that have very, very real experiences and those sorts of um, actors are important to understand so that's one of the things that the films enable us to kind of very explicitly address what well, Clive said there about lived experience
2: really is the key of it because text when you're reading you can't bring to life the feeling of being there and people's experiences so actually interviewing and talking to people who are about to cross the border talking to, to security guards who are about to stop people Going across the border, really you get a sense of the dramatic effect of being there. And you're talking about a border that's two thousand miles long, that goes from the Atlantic to the Pacific, that crosses different kinds of terrains, including desert and rivers. And unless you're there in that sense and you can see it visually and you can feel it, you could you can almost smell it at times. Eh? And it's that lived quality that allows you to teach those kinds that kind of experience. Eh?
0: Gillian, as the manager of the whole course, um, did you get good feedback from students about this way of teaching, using this material in this way?
4: Students who have taken the course have loved the DVD. <laughs> um, I think partly because of that, the kind of things that Clive and John have just been talking about. You know, I, I guess maybe when you start a, uh, you know, a university course, you might be expecting something rather dry and abstract perhaps, and instead you get this fantastic film that, that talks about really crucial issues that affect us all. You don't have to live on the US-Mexico border to be affected by the kind of things that uh, uh, are also shaping that place. Um, And you really, you know, you're drawn into the kind of these bigger issues in a very effective and and compelling kind of way, I think. But I think what students have also appreciated then is that we, we take them on from that because I guess, you know, you you can turn on your TV in the evening and also see some fascinating films about great issues that would also, you know, intrigue you and interest you. But what the course does is then, through other materials, mostly written, um, we we then explore those issues, push them further, raise some more complicated questions, offer some, we hope to offer some answers. uh, But we ask, we hope to also give the students some ways of thinking, you know, how they can provide their own answers to these issues, you know, things that they might be confronting, you know, they go to the supermarket to buy their television and notice that it's been built in, in uh, one of the uh, companies that have a maquilador on the, on, on the US-Mexico border. What do they do then? You know, I, I think it's a, it's a fantastic way to start a course, but it's a start that then takes people into more, more uh, thoughtful ways I think, of, of approaching issues very effectively.
0: Was this an original step, though, using the film material prior to introducing any text? Was this one of the first times that you, you taught a module or a course in this way?
2: It was certainly the first time for us. And uh, just echoing the previous point about lived experience, the point of using the DVD and starting with the DVD separate from a book was a way to pull uh, people in, to engage them with ideas in that kind of visceral sense that you are part of something. But it wasn't just about being on the border. As Gillian just said, The border is, in a sense, a springboard to other issues around uh, economic inequality, politics and power, culture, nature and the environment. And those are all issues that we pull out of the border itself.
0: Melissa, you've recently joined the department, Mm -hmm. haven't you? Yeah. Did it strike you coming into this department using this material in this way was, was an original way of doing it?
1: Well, I know in the past when I've been teaching students, um, whenever you use audiovisual material, and in the past I've used material that's been developed at Open University in courses that I've taught in other universities, it's been really well received by students. And particularly when students, uh, as you said, you know, you can turn on the news and, and see you know um, other parts of the world, but when you have this analysis that goes on behind it, it just gives it that extra dimension. They start thinking critically about it, and I think that's what makes it uh, an important tool, an important teaching tool with students is
0: there a relationship between this use of visual um, material to fieldwork in a way in the sense that you can learn about a subject and it's when you go on fieldwork as geographers do don't they mm-hmm. you then have a context for it and it becomes it, it, it suddenly feels real it comes off the page is there a relationship do you think between this this use of material and fieldwork?
1: I actually think it's the, the carrying on and the talking about it afterwards that actually can make it more real sometimes. It's when students start relating what they've seen to their own personal experience. I think that's one of the things we can do as teachers is to um, is to make it relevant. So even though you're looking at what's happening in the border, you've brought back these images from the US-Mexican border, you can uh, use processes to get students to draw out how this is um, also relevant to their lives as well here. Clive, is it
0: somehow easier to to understand all these issues when you look at them from from a distance?
3: I, th- I think the uh, what the hope is that by using examples from different parts of the world, and this is a this is a way of teaching geographically in in general. What you're showing students is examples of various sorts of processes, which which, as Melissa has already said, might sort of spark a recognition for for students. So it's it's not necessarily a question of saying this is what it's like. Far, far away in, uh, in other places it 's more a question of saying well it's like it 's like that as well over, over over there but one can think about the sorts of issues which are in the, in these uh, in these uh, film clips issues about uh, the politics of migration the location of Jobs conflicts around those kind of kind of questions, questions of who belongs, who doesn't belong. Those are questions which, if you're in in the UK and you're a student in the UK, well, those are clearly current current uh, public issues. Questions about security: how do you kind of police borders, uh, the rights that people have to move against security concerns. These are kind of questions which are, of course, current, current public issues in all sorts of places. The the purpose I think of, of using a uh, an example like the U.S. Mexico border is precisely it crystallizes a whole series of those those, those questions. One can kind of uh, follow them through, as you said, through particular people in a very kind of um, dramatic sorts of sorts of ways. But the the task beyond the the films, the task of of, of of teaching in this way more more generally, is is to then actually make those links and to encourage students to say, well, what's the what's the relationship between that that thing that we've seen that example we there and something going on closer to home, either in the UK or where I live in, in Reading or in Bristol or in Milton Keynes, wherever that might be.
1: Melissa? Well, just following on from what Clive was saying, I mean, there's an emotional quality in the films, which I think enables you to build up a certain empathy with students. So, uh, and the films show both sides of the argument, both someone that wants to cross the border for all the opportunities that you get when you cross that border, but also those on the other side that are trying to resist or close down those flows. And migration and globalisation is something that affects, you know, in England today. These debates are happening in in England today about um, border flows and security and, um, you know, how much control we have over who comes into the country and who doesn't. So uh, I think just generating that sense of empathy to hear someone describing why they would be willing to risk their life to cross a border can help broaden students' thinking about rather than just seeing this sort of faceless mass uh, or feeling um, sort of threatened perhaps by this kind of movement of people, but to get a different understanding of the uh, emotional drivers of, of migration as well.
0: Um, just to talk a bit now about the border as symbol, as magnet, very much brought up in the, in the clips. John, these are words that are, that are used a lot about the Mexico-US border, aren't they? Magnet. It just draws people to it, and it's become something sort of other than what it is, almost some, some sort of idea. Even the people who are living it were, were, were talking in that way about it.
2: I think that's a good way of putting it, referring to the border as an idea. What borders do is they both separate and divide, but they also connect people and they dramatize distance across it. So when you put a line up between people, suddenly you have a notion of ours and theirs. You have a sense that people who are actually quite close to you, just on the other side of a fence, are far away because they're maybe seen as culturally different or politically separate. So borders can dramatize distance in ways that very few things in, in in the rest of the world actually do.
0: I was very struck by Christian Ramirez, who was able to describe himself as an in-between person. What did he say? He said, "My U.S. citizenship is is just paperwork, but my culture is, and my traditions and my roots are." Uh, the culture is like the air, it's something that just exists. I mean, it, he was extraordinary, wasn't he,
1: the way he summed that up. This brings up the idea of, of the relationship. I mean, migration and movement is really impacting on how we think about the nation state and, and ideas of citizenship. So, uh, and that was a really interesting example of that. And there's other research that looks at this idea of citizenships of convenience, where you're seeing people that are able to, particularly if you have capital, if you have the economic means to do so, collect citizenship in other countries as well as a security blanket, if you like, if something was to happen in, in Hong Kong, for example, with the handover of Hong Kong to China, you saw business people applying for citizenship in other countries, but still maintaining their ties to China, because of it, would become an economic powerhouse. So you're sort of hedging your bets in some ways by um, splitting citizenship and, and cultural belonging. Uh, so we're seeing changes in in, in that way. Um, the notion of dual citizenship. You know, what does that mean today? You know, the border borders are not just these lines on the map or, or physical geographical barriers, but we're also seeing them as psychological. Borders, You know, so if you're a a second generation um, migrant like I am, for example, but uh, English, Australian with two passports and I can move now through Europe. So you've got now another layer of identity, which is Europe. You're seeing examples from the U.S.-Mexican border of of being Chicano, uh, being American, being Mexican. You know, where do all these different identities fit in? Where do the borders lie between these? And for the second generation, being in between is something they live with daily, moving across these cultural borders and trying to find a sense of belonging. It's not always easy. It can be quite a stressful process, but there's also opportunities with that as well. Cultures are never static.
4: Gillian? Yeah, to follow on from that, um, maybe certainly people move across borders, but I think we, um, we shouldn't sort of sort of fetishise the border too much, I think, if you like, um, because borders also move. Um, and as Melissa just mentioned in passing, the uh, handover of uh, Hong Kong back to China, you know, that, that was a border that had stayed stable for a long time, but then, but then shifted with, with radical consequences for the people living there, for the people who could, who could leave, who, could, who wanted to, to, to go to other places to, uh, to make a different kind of life elsewhere. In one of the uh, in one of the clips, we saw um, that that's absolutely true of the US-Mexico border. It shifted hugely, I mean, hundreds of kilometres uh, in, in the middle of the 19th century, when when the political agreements that that, that mark that border ac- across the ground uh, also uh, um, changed. That's when
0: Mexico lost so much territory. Yes,
4: huge amounts. Which I have to say, I didn't know that until John and Clive came back <laughs> with with that map. Um, <laughs> <love it>. yeah. <laughs> you know, because you kind of know borders change. Uh, you know. It's, fall of the Berlin Wall, Hong Kong. I mean, we've got plenty of contemporary examples, the EU expanding more recently. But actually to see it like that on a map was really quite back to the uh, impact and initial, in the in I the, I the psyche
0: of the people, they sort of somehow know that's their land yes, still. Yes,
4: yes, right? yes. And there's that very striking um, interview in one of the video clips with a woman whose ancestors had lost their land. And, you know, a generation later, and this old lady still determined to get that land back. And this returns again to the kind of emotional investments people have in places. And borders can cross them, but their senses of identity don't always align with borders. Uh, identity is much more complex and complicated, I think, in 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 a globalised world. People can feel that they belong in, in very different places, um, have quite different senses of history and how that feeds into where they feel they belong.
3: Clive? This is really to, to follow on that, that same point. On the one hand, borders c- can move, but it's also important, and this is also something which comes out of those clips, to have a sense of the fact that borders aren't thin, narrow lines at the edges of, of nation states, that Borders can actually be quite thick and impenetrable on the one, one hand, so they can be um, very high walls or electrocuted fences or, or hazardous rivers. Uh, so borders can be thick in that that sense. Um, but another theme which com- comes through some of the clips is the sense that actually the stakes involved at, at, at borders are actually kind of worked out and a- enacted uh, in all sorts of different places, not only at, at the border. So there's an example of of a roadblock 70 miles inside the United States in which people are having their papers checked and their cars searched. And one can think of more more obvious examples. One could fly to the United States, one could fly to Kansas City, slap bang in the middle of the United States, and one would be subjected to the same sorts of border controls there in the middle of a territory as one would do it at, the, 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 at the edge. And so one of the interesting issues which become, uh, begins to emerge from from some of those examples in the clips is the idea that what a border is is actually a set of practices. Uh, Those practices might be about building higher walls. Uh, They might be about stopping people, asking for papers or searching cars and increasingly perhaps in a globalized world, those sorts of practices are going on all over the place, not simply at the border. An example of this uh, would be the way in which employers are increasingly being asked both in the United States and elsewhere to take responsibility for actually checking the immigration status of, of the people they might, might hire. In the United States, you have the example of a very contested issue of whether the agencies who provide driving licenses should similarly be responsible for checking the immigration status of, of, of people applying for driving licenses. What that implies is that suddenly the, the stakes it, uh, uh, which are involved in borders, who belongs, who has the right to work somewhere or, or not, are suddenly been distributed all over the uh, national territory and aren't only simply at the at the edge of the of nation state.
0: The migrants at the border were very clear; they weren't. They wanted to go from one area to another because one area had jobs and one didn't. Yeah.
3: the the recurring theme of when when the migrants are talking is that sense that they might have moved, uh, they might may have become mobile in certain sorts of ways, and they become they've moved for very particular reasons. They all say we've moved for jobs. We need we need me jobs but they've also clearly left other people behind so that it's not that everybody has become mobile that they've they've moved created a sort of a distance as it were which they're actually bridging by sending money back and various other sorts of means but often actually living with very little contact with the people they've left behind but they've also suddenly kind of come up close landed in the middle of of communities who can support them in certain sorts of ways so they're developing new forms of New forms of community, but they've also sort of suddenly found themselves in contexts in which they're living up close with with a whole series of people who might not not like them being there. Um, so that one of the the features that comes again through the clips is that sense that on the one hand there's some very real economic imperatives driving people to move, but the sort of broader political and cultural consequences of those movements, both for sort of people they've left behind and in the context they find themselves are actually quite complicated ones of actually finding oneself in new bonds with new communities but also in in a much more vulnerable situation in various sorts of ways.
1: Melissa? Well, just following on, I guess, from Clive's point, the borders are a set of practices. I think they're also a set of representations as well. So I think what we're seeing almost in in opposition to the flow of globalization, we talk a lot about flows and and movement and mobility of people and capital and images and ideas around the world today at incredible speed – but they also hit the wall of the local. You know, there's stoppages along the way, visas and airport controls, and 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 um, the physical nature of the U.S.-Mexican border is one example. But I think we're also seeing the state, in some ways, um, trying to reclaim borders or redefine borders using representations as well. So you see in the clip, um, the idea of asserting Americanness or asserting Mexicanness within the in the diaspora, within the community, within in America, in the U.S. Uh, and you, again, you can see this happening globally. You know, what is Englishness? What is Britishness? Trying to redefine what these borders are or Scottishness here. That's the local debate. Um, so again, uh, you know, this, uh, the reaction against all this, uh, the mobility of migration is this, this kind of reassertion of, of borders using representations and, and rhetoric as well.
2: I had a quick point to that about the representation of borders and Clive talked about them being enacted and a set of practices which kind of sometimes don't always gel in The mind, but when you were there, you actually see these security guards perform the border, and I mean perform—they actually act it out. The Rio Grande, Rio Bravo, the river, the Texas side. Sometimes there's no water in it, so what do do? you—you know—people can walk across, but you've got you know people actually security guards driving around and actually almost in a militarized way, actually securing the border for the state, as Melissa says, it's the government embodied on the border. If you took them away. It's just a patch of land. But you have to see that kind of performance going on. It did really strike me being there, actually seeing that, and then imposing that on me.
1: And again, also just you can see this in other examples as well. I'm thinking of the Wagga border between India and Pakistan where there's been a whole military ritual created to enact that border, which was an artificial border created as a result of, of, of uh, colonialism and then independence for those two countries. But you had to create a border and that's done through this sort of ritualised dance that they've just invented but which they had to create to make sure that this border is seen to be something that is real
0: clive the, the mexico u s border has become heavily militarized hasn 't
3: it mm-hmm. Yes, i think i mean it 's always been a heavily policed border, but it 's been become increasingly militarized and securitized, which again is a, is a feature of borders elsewhere th- through the, th- throughout the world. I think one of the interesting things about that is that it sort of – it kind of crystallizes the coming together of two different dimensions of globalization, one of which is an increasing concern with security of of national borders around concerns about terrorism and so on, particularly in the United States after 9-11 on the one hand. But kind of coming up against a a different set of uh, processes embodied in in the US-Mexico border by NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which was signed in the 1990s between – Canada, United States and Mexico, which which technically does away with borders for the purposes of trade, for the movement of goods and services. Now, the consequences of NAFTA have actually been to worsen living conditions and to worsen poverty in much of Central and, and South, South America. So it's actually served as an impetus for more people moving to the border and trying to get across the border, um, thereby sparking politicized concern in the United States to sort of police the border more effectively. So the militarization of the border uh, is really an expression of the coming together of these different sets of concerns. One set of processes actually which sort of seem to do away with borders, sparking a set of political um, responses which actually are trying to actually police much more heavily movement of, of people across, across the, uh, the border.
0: And you had those um, individuals who had taken it upon themselves mm-hmm. in, in the United States to actually film movement, migrant movement, that they felt yeah. the sta- their state hadn't, wasn't handling well.
3: Yes. I mean, uh, one, of the, one of the effects of the militarization of the, of the border is that, that crossing the border has become much, much more dangerous. Um, it means that people are, on the one hand, much more liable to being exploited on the Mexican side by the people who actually guide them across. It also means on the other, other side, because there's a politics around immigration in, in certain parts of the southwest of the United States. Those people, once they get across, not only are they trying to escape a detection by the, the, the federal authorities and, and the formal authorities, but they're also being subjected to various forms of, of harassment by citizen organisations, self-styled organisations. So crossing the border, which again has always been a risky process, has become much, much more risky, much, much more hazardous, partly because of the, the, what people are negotiating is the real presence of states, the, the presence of police forces and, and militaries. It, another consequence of the militarization of the border, building fences and high walls over more and more of the border, is that most of that flow of immigrants, uh, of illegal immigration, is now being channeled through particular parts of the, of the of the border, specifically through the the Arizona sector.
0: Is that what John Fife, the Presbyterian minister, referred to as the corridor of death?
3: Yes, yes. It, the, it, what he's referring to is that that's a desert area. So people are increasingly move, having to move through that part of the, the border, which involves a four or five or six day trek through a desert rather than a, a quick hop through a fence in the middle of a city. Therefore, those people have become much more vulnerable to What's involved in being in the desert for six six days, which is dehydration. So the, the level of deaths in that part of the uh, the, the border has has uh, increased dramatically, and you have in turn a set of organisations, humanitarian organisations, uh, involved in trying to reduce that uh, that consequence. But in various different ways, what one sees then is that crossing the border has become a highly hazardous experience for people who as you said before are doing it because they're already vulnerable economically and they're being more made more vulnerable to various forms of violence and more vulnerable to actually the hazards of living and trying to survive in certain sorts of environments.
4: Gillian it's particularly hazardous for women am I correct? That's right yes um Not perhaps so much in terms of of the the journeys that migrants are making that Clive was describing, but um, one of the cities on the US-Mexico border, Juarez, It is described as one of the most violent places to to live on the planet. Um, It's a place that's been put under enormous pressures from very uh, rapid and now changing once again economic development. A lot of the big factories that some of the clips show you moved in 10, 15 years ago to make uh, use of cheap labour and and the labour there is paid very little. Uh, It's mostly women who work in in those uh, Macilodora factories and some of those are now moving on, in fact, to China. So a lot of the employment that was, was there bad as it was, uh, has now also it's now going. So the situation is worsening. But the pressures on the women um, have been particularly bad. And there are huge levels of violence against women in particular in those areas. Well over 400 women have been murdered since the early 1990s in Juarez. Very few, I think, just two people have been jailed for for some of those. Uh, So clearly, there there are a lot of murderers loose in the city still. Um, And there are arguments about why why that is. Um, But I think for me, probably the most the most credible one is, is that this is an area that's been subjected to huge change very fast, um, and in particular, the change has impacted on women um, because they've been put into cheap jobs, they're earning money, which actually gives them a little independence now, a little more than they had before. So there's a sense in which in in this uh, in these rapidly changing cities, women are, are choosing to work in these places, uh, maquiladoras, but are finding that actually that move for them is is although they're earning money, it's not a move that seems to be valued or or understood in in that place more widely. And they're becoming extremely vulnerable to all sorts of of violence. And they've been described as disposable women. That, that they are paid cheaply to do incredibly repetitive jobs that often destroy their their health, um, you know, eyesight problems, um, health, you know, all sorts of uh, occupational health hazards that they undergo. Um, and then when these sorts of violence starts to happen, actually the state doesn't care very much and nothing has been, certainly Amnesty International has been arguing is persistently. The, the, the Mexican state at, at both local and, and national level has done very little to try and stop this violence against against the women. And it's perhaps one of the most disturbing aspects of, of, of all of this um, that I guess is perhaps harder for us in, in um, more wealthy countries to really uh, uh, identify with, that the, 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 ex- the extreme, the, the costs of these processes of globalisation are actually people dying and actually very few people in some places caring very much about that.
0: It was interesting, John Five's point in, in one of the clips that struck me that, that there should be a totally different attitude towards the border, that it should be managed well rather than... Defended. Uh, Is this a very strong argument in this whole area?
1: Well, there is some research that's being done in the States, actually, that if the border was more um, flexible, in a sense, that you would have a greater flow of people. We have this idea now with migration that it's transnational, it's more circular. Uh, And you can see this again in Europe with East Europeans working in England going back. But what's happening with the border in Mexico, because it's so militarized, Is that when people cross because of the cost of being smuggled across, um, because of the danger if you do get across, the chances of you coming back are less likely. So there is an argument that if the border was actually more flexible or managed rather than defended, you would have more movement and you would be less likely – particularly as it's mostly young men that are making this crossing, for them to stay and put down roots. And some of these problems would be resolved if, if it was better managed in that way. John?
2: And it's interesting, there's a, a tension there between the, the politics of the border and the economics of the border. And if you manage it politically, then, as Clive was saying earlier, you have seen you know, the, government wish, the US government wishing to make the border more secure to keep people or certain kinds of people out. But actually, economically, the argument is that you need people to move across and and migrate and actually be part of the labor force, particularly in California, Mm. but right across some of the major cities in the the U.S. And those groups of workers coming not just from Mexico, but coming out from Central America, even further south, who are coming across the border illegally, actually run part of the U.S. economy. Mm. Now, if they're not there, it would be a real problem for the U.S. economy and the U.S. government. So they're, in a sense, they're trying to manage that tension. And at different times, it moves more towards the harsh side of the politics. At other times, it goes more towards the kind of laissez-faire of the economics. So depends on who's president, right?
0: Going back to Christian Ramirez again, um, who um, articulated this notion of being both one side of the border and the other and being able to manage that identity and saying that US citizenship was the paperwork and everything else was the real him, in a sense, It occurred to me, do you think that's threatening to, for example, U.S. people who, the pa- it's not paperwork, it's the, it's their culture.
1: <laughs> that is one of the fears that people have. I think it's important that we acknowledge that, that people have this fear. We, we Change can be stressful, it can be a fearful process for people. So it's, it's about the unknown. It's like, you know, what's happening to our culture where we are familiar with how things are done, we have a particular power structure and a hierarchy and this is normal for us and now we have these other communities coming in and things are going to change. And we need to try and control this. And and there is this, you know, we've heard all of these kind of arguments from, from groups um, that uh, would say that, um, you know, th- th- this is why we're seeing the state, um, rhetorically at least, talking more about citizenship tests. You know, if you come to this country, you have to speak English, you have to prove that you have the same values as we do, that you're going to behave in the same way that we think is acceptable. So, yes, it's certainly one of the, I think, the reasons why, people become defensive of their own culture when they might hear something like that but there's also a whole series of reasons why someone would articulate their sense of identity in that way and what you find is that over time people become, I mean this particular um, person is in a very interesting position because he's right on the border as we're on that, that physical territorial border but you'll also find that over time people's attitudes change they adapt, it, it, it's, it takes time and it can take one or two or three generations generations. generations you know and and
4: one of the things that that always strikes me looking at the uh, those series of clips are the um, the incredibly different investments that people have around the border that people feel so strongly about it and in very different ways And, and the obvious examples are the um uh, one of those informal kind of vigilante groups, I guess we could call them, that, that Clive uh, mentioned um, earlier, versus the Presbyterian minister who treks out into the desert carrying water supplies to, to rescue some of those dehydrated immigrants and, and you know, save them from a you know, sort of terrible death. Um, and it, I have no answer to this, but it's extraordinary that you know in that same area, you know, living 100 kilometers apart, perhaps, there are two people with such different views about the, about those immigrants. One who will invest huge amounts of money, look to me like, in great high-tech technology to try off his own back to try and detect these migrants and hand them back to authorities and get them back to where he thinks they belong in Mexico. And somebody else instead who, who will take water to those people to, to stop them from, from dying. I, I don't know how to explain that difference, but it's a fascinating one. And I think – It's important, though, to to think more about because it does strike me that certainly within the US and also within UK political culture, I think a lot of arguments around migration, more broadly around other aspects of globalization, are increasingly conducted in these rather more kind of emotional tones, you know, so the debate... It's sometimes around the kind of economic logics that that uh, John's talked about, um, it's sometimes around the kind of political rationales of, you know, European Union is a good thing because it will, you know, reduce the risk of conflict within Europe or whatever. Um, but increasingly, and particularly around migration, governments or many places in the world seem to be latching onto these fears that a lot of people have around migration. Sadly, I would say much less often around the much more hopeful uh, views around migration. I think um, Christian Ramirez, who you've met, Mentioned a couple of times, Benny has a you know a very moving vision for me about a world where borders don't exist. Now I, I kind of think being realistic, that's a little unlikely. <laughs> he's unusually um, at ease. He's with unu- it. Yes, yes, uh, yes, unusual. Well, I wonder actually. I mean, he, his, his is a, a voice that we hear very little. In contemporary debates about migration, you don't hear people standing up and saying, you know, well, I'm sure if we went on the table today, most of us are either migrants (laughs) or we have close family who are or we know friends who are, you know, most people have experience of of migration in their lives um, and that. You know, actually doing everyday things, you know, going off on your cheap flights to see a a friend or a relation somewhere, you know, or sending family photos to to your great aunt who emigrated to Canada, you know, or, you know, there are a lot of very ordinary everyday ways in which, in fact, you know, we could think about us all being migrants in one way or the other. But that sense of being at ease with with that crossing borders is... um, is not a kind of emotional stance that a lot of the politics of this seem, seem to want to build on, certainly at, at national political uh, levels of debate. Uh, and I think for me that, that's, that's quite disturbing, I mean, partly because we don't really understand why it is that people side on one way or the other, fall one way or the other on, on this issue. And it's a very powerful way to, to conduct debates as well. People get swept along with these emotional rhetorics mm-hmm. without pausing perhaps to think about other logics, the, 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 the political, the economic and so on.
1: Well, I was just carrying on from this idea of the ease of movement as well. Uh, And one thing that struck me from the clips was the ease that – and I'm wondering if there's a class or an uh, issue here um, in terms of our responses to migration. But you see the ease with which the manager can cross the border – the American manager can cross over to Mexico to manage the, the company and the difficulty from going the other way from the laborers' side. And so we, we have now today, we, we, we tend to think of migration and the, the problems, and I'm putting inverted commas, which is no good for radio, but uh, around that idea of the problem of migration or the challenges of migration. We tend to associate in these public debates that Gillian was just referring to with this the low-skilled unskilled migration because that's mass migration we tend to feel and one of the respondents uh, the American respondents or Texan respondents was saying you know, feeling that they were being overwhelmed feeling they were being flooded by migrants and this is often again an emotional response that people have to migration but we also have another class of migrants which is this highly mobile professional migrants which we just see briefly in the film the sort of the manager class the managerial class now for them this movement is easy you know for us migration is easy. Uh, For me, it was really easy. You know, I don't have the same kind of issues because I come from a particular educated or class background, if you like, if you want to introduce those terms. Uh, And I think that's something else we need to be aware of in the debates about our responses to migration. You know, some of us just disappear into the system, whereas for other groups of people, um, they're forced to take these illegal, dangerous, dirty, degrading routes of of mobility movement. John, a big actor in this whole
0: drama is the natural world, isn't it, in terms of borders? And this comes out in the clips through water.
2: It certainly does. Um, water seems to play a number of significant roles in the border. Perhaps the most obvious one is that when you, you take the Rio Grande, Rio Bravo, it is it, the water itself is the border. Back in uh, eighteen, I think 1848, in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hild- Hildago, they actually decided that the border itself would be the middle of the river. Now, at that time, they knew that rivers move. (laughs) So every so often when there would be a flood and there would be a detached piece of land, say, to the north or the south, they would kind of allocate land, some to Mexico, some back to the US itself. But, of course, at certain points in time, some of the chunks of land were extremely large. It becomes a geopolitical issue. If If the middle of the river is actually the border and the borders move in some cases it moves across people and so water itself something you think you can c- control naturally in this case shifts something that's geopolitical but there are other things involved there as well because water itself as we s- saw in a number of the clips around the citrus growing uh, side of things water is a scarce resource and there's a conflict between the US side and how they use that water whether using it not just for agriculture but also for recreation golf etc and on the mexico side where they're also using it for agriculture, but also there's a real scarcity in the shanty towns, in Juarez in particular. So there's it's almost not a different cultural meaning of water, but a different set of practices about how water should be used. And there seems to be a, a real kind of sharp opposition, almost black and white understanding how that should be. And because there are tributaries on both sides that come into the Rio Grande and Rio Bravo, there's an issue about how you control water even further upstream. So you can see water coming into the picture geopolitically, economically and culturally right right across the border. Gillian Rose, as course chair, what
0: would you hope that your students who studied this course on the Mexico-US border would take with them?
4: Well, the, the clips concentrate on the US-Mexico border, and, and that's where the course starts. But uh, as students move on through the course, we move away from that border. Um, as we said at the beginning, that w- we start at the border because it's a, an intense and compelling and exciting place to really bring some of the issues around globalization alive. But of course, globalization by definition, it, it, it's global. It stretches well beyond any particular place. And, and indeed, it's all about linking different places, different places stretch uh, relations between different places, stretching around the world, very long distances, all sorts of different relations. And and we've talked about a lot of them already, economic relations, political relations, questions of of feelings of belonging and identity, cultural identity and and so on. There there are many others that if we'd had more time, we we could have gone through. So I hope uh, when students have, have worked through the course materials and been taken to other places, well beyond the US-Mexico border. Some of those places will be connected to the US-Mexico border and others others won't. Um, but nonetheless, they'll have a sense of the range of ways in which the world is now interconnected uh, and indeed disconnected because, of course, borders stop things moving as well as allow them to move. But what they'll have is a kind of clearer understanding of why, just why it is that that globalization seems such a huge and and complex beast, Um, that it's about a lot of different processes, sometimes working together, but sometimes contradicting each other. Uh, And it's also about the ways in which those processes are are practiced uh, and carried out by individuals actually doing ordinary, rather everyday sorts of things, whether that ordinary everyday thing is managing a maquiladora, going to fetch water in in a shanty town in Juarez, landing in an airport and, and digging out your passport and handing it you know, to be able to cross over a border if, if you're lucky, to be hauled off to some interrogation room if you're not and so on. All those things are part of globalisation um, and I'd hope that by the end of the course uh, people will be able to have a better sense of why things uh, are like that and also possibly why things might be changed for the better.
0: Gillian Rose, thank you very much. Clive Barnett, Melissa Butcher, John Allen, thanks very much for the discussion.
4: Thank you. Thank you.